Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for today's very special episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Today, we got Vina Jetty with Vive Funds, and Vina flew in from Dallas, Texas, to teach me everything I need to know yes. to, uh, to launch a real estate fund. You guys have heard me hinting I'm going to be doing something, so this is what she's coming out here to coach me on. Uh, she was introduced to me through our mutual friend, yes. Pace Morby. Yes. Right? And he was telling me, like, because he's got his fund going on. He does. Right? And I was over at Astro uh, at their mastermind a couple of months ago. And he was like, Steve, you need to be my friend. She's the smartest person <laughs> in the space. You absolutely need to talk to her. I was like, okay, Pace. Right? And he's, then we get this message on Sunday. It's like, hey, Vina's in town. It's like, okay, fantastic. Because this is really, really fortuitous timing because I've got a bunch of questions. i got a bunch of ideas. And what better it. way to learn from someone that has done, what was it, $900 million yes. in multifamily? I'm going to cross a billion dollars this quarter. Going to cross a billion dollars yes. in multifamily. Yes. So you know a thing or two. Uh, you know a couple things. About funds. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Perfect. So again, it's a live show. So ask your questions to, for, for Vina to answer as well. So while I'm selfishly learning for myself, please jump in here, ask your questions, because this is one of those things where you can get a lot of trouble Yes. You do it wrong. Yes. So, uh, you know, let's <clears throat> do two things first. Let's talk about the disclaimer. Yes. Let's talk about the things that can happen if you do, do this wrong. And then we'll ask all the good questions. I love it. So yes. disclaimer. So disclaimer. We are not attorneys, CPAs, financial professionals. We have no licenses. <laughs> so all of this is for educational purposes only. Right. And you should always circle back with your professionals to give you the right advice for your right. fund. Right. Um, but, you know, I'll share my experience and what we do or how it works for us or how, you know, generally how it works. Yeah. Um, but there are going to be a lot of nuances that you need to make sure you are following <laughs> and you're fitting into these boxes because if you don't, yeah. there could be really bad consequences. Right. And, you know, you don't want any three-letter agencies asking you questions. Yeah, so, like, you know, if you copy another wholesaler's contract, like, sh should you have an attorney review it? Yes. Does everyone do it? Maybe not. Yeah, we right? look the other way. Right. <laughs> Contracts whatever, right? Um, but this is the one area where I always operate with a healthy amount of paranoia. Yes. Because the last thing you want is the SEC Correct. to knock on your door. Correct. Because they don't come in like, hey, did you realize you didn't do this? Yes, that's correct. It's like, hey, you did this and this you need problem. legal help. Yes, this is a right? problem, right. Um, another thing too, you know, we talked about on the show before is when the government comes after you, they don't fight fair, Right. They seize all your assets, mm -hmm. so you can't even afford yep. your good attorneys. Right, and that's the thing, right? They have a lot of resources, <clears throat> so it's just resources. better, it's cheaper. It's the right thing for your investors mm -hmm. to do things the right way and put in the upfront diligence and prudence to make sure it's done correctly. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the bad things that can happen so everyone's fully aware yes. and attentive, and then we'll talk about yes. starting fun. So where are all the things that can I go bad it. if you don't do this the right way um, uh, as far as legal compliance issues? Well, depending on how wrong you do it, you could go to jail, right? Yeah. Um, but really, the bigger, probably more likely risk is that you are not in compliance with either securities rules or Investment Company Act or Investment Advisors Act. And then you are potentially putting yourself in a situation where you can be fined, you can be deemed a bad actor, which means you can't do this ever again. It means you can't invest into deals doing this, oh, even really? passively. Yeah, so there, you know, there's a lot of implications, but what I like to do is I like to you know, go to our attorney, get everything we need, and then when my investors go, oh, 
this is such a pain or this is so awful. And we'll talk about, you know, PPMs a little bit here. Um, but the proper response then is the SEC makes us do this. Like we are compliant. We follow all the rules. And at our company, we believe how you do little things is how you do everything. Mm -hmm. So if we're cutting corners here, then where else are we cutting corners? Right. Right. So now it's like, no, we don't cut corners here at this really difficult thing that we maintain vigilance over. So we don't cut corners anywhere else. Absolutely. So now that we got yes, the now we scared everyone away. Now that we from scared us. everyone. Yes, which is really important. Yes. Um. So I want to start my own real estate fund. Yes. So what do I need to know to start my own real estate fund? So I think first is what is the structure of your mm-hmm. fund, right? Are you going to raise? So there's three main types of funds you're going to have, right? You're going to have one which is like a single asset fund. So you're going to come to your investors and you're going to say, investors. I want to buy one, two, three Main Street apartments. It's 200 units in Orlando, Florida, and this is what the business plan is, right? So that's one way. It's a single asset fund. It's a known asset. It's identified. The second way is a semi-blind fund. Um, That means, hey, investors, I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy large multifamily assets in Florida and Texas. They're going to be around 100 to 300 units or whatever your business plan is. Clarify a buy box. Yeah, you have a buy box in mind. And then the third way is a truly blind fund where you're like, I'm going to buy things. Trust me with your money, right? So um, that could be anything. It could be multifamily. It could be single family. You could fund wholesale. You could buy debt notes, you know, whatever that looks like for you. And so depending on what your ultimate goal is, you'll pick kind of one of the three. Now, when you're first starting out, it's always the easiest to start with a single identified asset fund Mm -hmm. because otherwise people are like, well, you have no track record. You have no history. How do we know what we're investing in? And people want, you know, the business plan and they have more questions about the specifics of it. Once you've done that a couple of times successfully, then you can move to a semi-blind or a blind fund. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So um, what's the first step, right? So like, okay, I want to start a fund. And I mean, for me, my plan is to kind of like compete with those other hedge funds that are just buying and holding, mm-hmm. right? So what's step one for me? So step one is okay, besides, you, as, besides asking Vina to come on to the show. <laughs> well, okay, you've already done step one. You've kind of identified what the overall business plan is. What we do at our company is then we'll go and we'll create a more in-depth business plan, right? So yeah. we'll really start looking at like targets. We'll look at pro formas. We'll look at kind of what it looks like over a five-year hold, seven-year hold. Once you have all that and you're like, okay, now I know what I'm going out and doing. The first thing I do every time without a doubt is I call my securities attorney mm-hmm. um, and Given how we started this show, it seems apt for you to do the same. Absolutely. Um, and this is why. Because there are different exemptions that you can rely on. Because what you're doing when you raise capital for a real estate fund is you're selling a security. And so you want to make sure you have a certain exemption from registering those securities. So we utilize, there's four, ma- or I guess three major exemptions that real estate relies on one of them has two pieces to it so i'll go through what the four buckets are Mm -hmm. so first you have your reg a raises um those raises are very time consuming they can take six nine twelve months to set up properly they probably cost about 150 to 200 thousand dollars to set them up nine to twelve months yes it's a very long runway. Yes, very long runway um but the benefit of it is you can raise capital from accredited or unaccredited investors in it mm-hmm. and you can publicly advertise it. So it's there's a lot of really good benefits to it, but it's a very 
high bar to overcome, especially if you're just starting out. So yeah. most people don't start with a reggae. We've never done a reggae. Yeah, I, first time I've actually had any kind of conversation about reggae. Really? Okay, yeah. It's, <laughs> and it's because the bar is so high for yeah. it, right? And I, I think Pace is actually getting ready to set up a reggae mm -hmm. because he's been doing it for a while, right? And he yeah. has funds, he has experience, he has the resources to put in the time and the money to get it set up properly. So yeah. that's reggae. Then you have one called Reg CF, which is Regulation Crowdfund. Um, and this regulation... It's actually like a baby reggae, mm -hmm. but the limitation on it is you can only raise $5 million on it. Cap. Cap. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Not $5 million in $1, not 5.1, not 6, not 10, 5. Mm -hmm. And so for the deals we transact on, we buy usually 200 plus units, 75 million and up. $5 million is like a rounding error on those deals. So I, Cannot use a Reg CF. Is this the one that uh, Grant Cardone was using a lot of? He uses Reggae. He uses Reggae. Reggae, yeah. Okay. So, because he, Reggae has a higher limit. I think it's like 75 million or something. Right, but like I mean, like, there was a time where he was just taking money from everybody. Right? A credit or not. Was, or my I think he, 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 no, he, he does. And it, that's through the Reggae. So, Reggae, it doesn't have to be accredited only. It could be. Correct. It can be both accredited or unaccredited. Okay, so if I got like $2,500, I can. Invest in his reggae. I think you can. I don't know what his minimums are, but I think that sounds right. Gotcha. Okay. So, yeah. So, reggae, reg CF. Actually, all of them, there's no minimum. You, the sponsor sets the minimum. Got it. So, then you have reg D, which is my favorite exemption mm -hmm. because it is, I think it's the most practical for how quickly real estate deals move, right? There's not a lot of deals where you can sit for like six months before you fund them. Mm -hmm. So, reg D has two pieces to rule 506 B and 506C. Right. I think I read somewhere that 506B is the most common exemption relied on. So what Reg D Rule 506B says is you can raise as much money as you want from accredited investors and up to 35 unaccredited but sophisticated investors, right. which sounds great because you're like, oh, I can go out and raise all this money. Here's a caveat to it. You could only raise capital from people you have a pre-existing substantive relationship right. with, and you cannot publicly advertise it. So there's no general solicitation allowed on it. So for the uninitiated, what does pre-existing and substantial relationship mean? Yes. So the SEC is not very clear about this. Mm -hmm. um, I think most attorneys will give you the guidance, and this is why you need your securities attorney, because they will tell you exactly what they okay. deem to be the bar. Um, you should already have a very good idea of whether they're accredited or unaccredited when they come into your fund, right? Um, so that's number one. Like you have that much knowledge of them that you know what their standards are, whether they're accredited or not. Second, you probably know about, you know, like their family. Maybe you know about who their kids are, where they vacation, where they went to undergrad. You have a substantial relationship. It's not someone that you know, you met at a networking event once and never talked to them ever again, right. and now you're going back to raise capital from them. They probably wouldn't meet the bar. Um, but there's no clear guideline. Like, you have to have met seven times and have talked for two hours total. It, yeah. It's not like that. It's kind of open to interpretation a so little bit. So I'm going to speak on the advice I've received. This yes. is, not again, not legal advice. Yes. The advice I've received was you have to have them at least opt into your database. Yes. You need to have at least one conversation with them. Yep. Where you're not soliciting their Correct. money. Correct. Just talking about them yes. and what they're trying to accomplish. Yes. And then a third time, at least after a third time. Yes. yes. You could say, here's what I'm doing. Yep. 
let me know if you're interested in it. And I think that's the general advice most attorneys are going to give you. Um, And, you know, here's the key. The key is documentation, right? Because if I meet you twice and I've spent eight hours with you both times, that might be enough to meet that bar. It just, it's so subjective, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's definitely a gray area. So document, document, document. Um, If, you know, you are being asked these questions, Mm -hmm. then if you're able to say like, oh, no. I know Steve, we did all these things and this is his, who he's married to and this is where he lives and this is where he went to college and this is the frat he was in, you know, like all these things. This you see might be like, okay, this is a pretty substantial relationship. Right. This, isn't, me- this isn't um, like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross where like you filled out a form right, and then we just took your money. Right, exactly. That you don't want to do because that's probably not <laughs> substantiative yeah. and you don't want to post about it on social media. Right. So yeah, I, I do want to spend some time talking about this. And we will, we will because okay, this yeah. is an important, I think, distinction. So, the rule 506C under Reg D allows you to post on social media or to generally solicit. And you can raise as much capital as you want. It moves much faster, just like the 506B does. But the caveat of it is you cannot have even one unaccredited investor mm-hmm. in your deal. And a big so see, di- I can post on social media, yes. but, I, but everyone must be accredited. Everybody. And a big difference in administrative hurdle between um, B and C raises is that on a B raise, because you have a pre-existing substantive rela- substantial relationship, you theoretically probably know what their profession is, if they're accredited or not. Mm-hmm. So you can rely on self-attestation for their accreditation status. Mm-hmm. So if I know you're accredited, you invest in my 506B, and then I give you a questionnaire and you tell me you're accredited and you sign saying that this is true and correct mm-hmm. – that's likely enough to meet the hurdle for whether you're accredited or sophisticated. Now in a 506C raise, even if you're like my best friend, you told me about all this money you made in the last like 10 years or you've been making money and, or you, I know you have the net worth. I have to take reasonable steps to verify your accreditation status. And the SEC specifically says that self attestation is not enough to meet that criteria. Got it. So what we do at our, company is we have a third party give us a letter saying like I'm a CPA in the state of California and I am familiar with Steve's financials and according to it's like rule 501 whatever of the SEC mm-hmm. um, he is an accredited investor you want to hear something ridiculous tell me I always want to hear something ridiculous <laughs> so you know we say we're on a mission to create 100 millionaires mm-hmm. right and we say hey if you're a millionaire let us know and we're gonna you know celebrate this and get a plaque and yeah, some video about it. this, right? We do all these things. Yeah. And so I get people messaging me like, hey, I want to let you know I'm a millionaire. I was like, that's awesome. I need proof. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> right? And so I asked them to send something from their CPA or screen capture or their bank statement, this or that. This and, is perfect. You already have the whole system set. And more than, less than 30% of the time will someone do that. Really? Unfortunately. Do you think it's because they're not actually a credit or they're not actually a millionaire? Or do you think they just don't want to go through the hurdle for it? I think there's a healthy mix of like, it feels like I'm a millionaire, uh. <laughs> but I haven't actually done the the actual assessment. Right? So we put together like a whole thing, you know, it's wealth, wealthevaluation.com, mm-hmm. right? I actually have like a six page PDF on like how to figure out what your net worth is. Love your that. uh your your monthly uh expenses yeah uh and t- uh, after tax take home like yep. just all these things you need to figure out your wealth yeah so we put, provide that for free to help people with it right 
But I also know, just in my experience, and I'm included in this, we hate doing the things that are necessary yes. to figure out what we're actually worth. Yes. You know, it's funny that you say that because I, I am just like, oh, the idea of having to fill that out is so, – because I have to fill out a PFS for any time we go for funding. Mm-hmm. And it's like updating it is so cumbersome because – Real estate values, like, mm-hmm. they move. You don't always know how much you're worth at any given moment. Right. So I, I feel this in my bones. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, continue. So, yeah, okay. So, and maybe we should talk about what's accredited versus unaccredited, yeah, right? Because that's, I think, a big question a lot of people ask. And a lot of people who are accredited don't know that they're accredited. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole list of definitions, but, like, 99.9% are going to meet one of two definitions. The first one is they're going to have a million dollars of net worth excluding the primary home. So that means like all the people in California, you cannot include your, the equity in your primary home when you are right. counting your net worth. Um, so assets minus liabilities. But you can if you do a cash out refi. That's why I tell people that's like the bonus to doing the cash out refi because then you can take that cash and buy another investment property or mm-hmm. whatever you do and then you probably are meeting the net worth requirement. Right. So I think that's always smart to evaluate just in general. Um, the second way is going to be through income. So if you are a single person, you have to made, have made 200000 or more for the last two years mm-hmm. with a reasonable expectation of maintaining that. Or if you're married, it's 300000 or more for the last two years mm-hmm. with a reasonable expectation of maintaining that. Yeah. So uh, I invested in a fund officially beginning of last year, yes. but I actually started the process earlier, yep. right? And my friend, um, Stephanie Better, she's mm-hmm. the owner of Left Main. She's like, hey, you know, like, here's the process, this and that. And it's like, well, how do you even know I'm accredited? She's like, Steve. I know you're accredited. <laughs> I, run, I I can look at your Salesforce and <laughs> see, see it. your business. <laughs> I know you're making more than 300000 a year. So, and that's like a reasonable step, right? So the SEC does not say you have to go and get a letter from your CPA. It doesn't yeah. actually define that clearly. Right. But that's a reasonable step that she has intimate knowledge of your financial. Right picture to say like okay i know you're making more and it's so funny because you know the investors i have that make the most money are the most annoyed with having to show their status and i'm like just get your cpa to like write a letter this isn't that hard and they're like i don't have a cpa i'm like you make like two million dollars a year what do you mean you don't have a cpa so my theory on this (laughs) is that i think generally speaking the people that are most successful yeah tend to be the less detail oriented yes I think that would be true given and, my and also less rule followers. Okay, I could definitely see that. Because if you're a rule follower, you probably stayed within the, yeah. the normal ecosystem. Yeah. Versus deviating. Yeah, that might be true. Yeah. So you mentioned sophisticated investor, and I was actually talking to someone else about this. I'd love to get your take yeah. on what a sophisticated <sighs> investor is. I know I'm not going to hold you in the court on this, right? But generally speaking, yeah. Well, the reason I'm like. <sighs> and huffing and puffing about it is because um, this is another area where the SEC is clear as mud on it. Right. Um, so they don't really tell you necessarily what a sophisticated investor is. But listen, what the SEC is designed to do, and I think it's important what they do, is they're designed to protect the public. Mm-hmm. And what the SEC doesn't want to happen is have someone who maybe has never invested in anything before, has like a high school education, works in like a retail store, saying, oh, okay, here's 25000 or 50000 or 100000 like my whole entire life savings, mm-hmm. and put it into a high-risk venture, which, you know, whether it's high-risk or not, that's debatable. But there are people out there that 
do not know how to run real estate mm -hmm. funds, right? Like they don't have the resources and the connections to run it correctly. Right. And so it can be dangerous in that way. And so the SEC is trying to protect you and I from taking money from those people. Right. Well, I mean, if things go south. Right. You have those to people, be able to withstand the loss. Those people are, and I think rightfully so, going to be heavily protected. Right, and they should be. By the federal government against. Absolutely. Potentially, you said bad actors was the term you were Bad using, actors, right? yes. Right. It's like these people do need to be protected. Yeah. Because they might not fully understand what's what involved the implication in is. real estate investing. Exactly. And so the sophistication rule is really to prevent those people mm -hmm. from making these decisions because they get like excited in the glitz and the glam. And you know, the FOMO is real. And so. I mean, you just go to any of these like um, massive guru events. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't take a lot to get someone to like open up a credit card line. Yeah, and be excited it. about it. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so that's what it's designed to, that's who it's designed to protect. So generally like sophistication, have you made these types of investments before? Do you understand them fundamentally? I, you know, my degree's in finance. So I might, if I didn't have the net worth or I didn't have the income, then I might have fallen under the sophistication because I, you know, I'm a finance degree. I worked in corporate real estate. So I understand, I have a general understanding of these better than the average person. Yeah. Um, you could also, another way you could kind of mitigate some of the potential risk there is if maybe you're not accredited, but you're, and you maybe you don't have the sophistication background, but you have a financial advisor who's now signed off on this for gotcha. you. Because then that's someone who's looking at your portfolio and saying, okay, you know what, if you want to take this risk on, it's appropriate risk for you. You understand the risk. Correct. Correct. And you have someone who really understands the risk that's saying yes or no, no. Financial advisors usually hate these types of investments anyway. Yeah. Um, there's very few that are really savvy. Yeah, there's very few that are savvy enough to really understand why this is beneficial. And then in any financial advisors that aren't fee only, they're not incentivized to let you invest into these types of deals. And that's a whole different. That's a different topic for a different, different Yeah, a totally different topic. Yeah. <laughs> when I first learned about the concept of fiduciaries, it was yeah. like, oh my God. Life changing, like a bunch right? Of vultures. Like, Everything that's horribly said about wholesalers yep. is actually true about stockbrokers. <laughs> anyway. That's a different show, Steve. <laughs> different show. So are these the four funds? Yeah, these are like the four major types. Of, I okay. mean, there's others, but these are the four major ones that you're likely going to use. So let's go back into the Reg D506B. Uh, okay. So obviously, I'm doing a lot on social media. Yes, what are the things I absolutely cannot say on social media? So I think that the SEC's position is you cannot induce investment into a 506B raise. Mm. And for someone like you, as not an attorney, mm -hmm. uh, what I would say is because you utilize social media so much, I think a 506C is probably a better fit for you because then you don't really have to worry as much about how you're, who you're taking in, how they're finding you. You know, you say one thing on social media and you might have ruled yourself out of using a 506B exemption. Mm -hmm. So, and this is why I say your first call has to be to your securities attorney. Right. Because, um, and I'll introduce you to Nick mm -hmm. from Polymath Legal. He's phenomenal. I've been working with him for like 100 years. Yeah. It's been like, I think like 13 or 14 years. But it feels years. like 100. It feels like 100. <laughs> um but he's just, he's so good. He is so knowledgeable. And what I love about him is he's really conservative. So 
which also I hated about him, and I fight with him about this all the time. I hate it, but for this instance. You love it. Yes, yes. that's exactly Because, like, you know how attorneys are. They can, like, they're so great when they're good, but, like, man, they're deal killers. Mm-hmm. They, like, never want, they're like, no, 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 but this earthquake could happen in Japan, and that could be a problem for your real estate deal in Florida. I'm like, really? <laughs> like, that's what we're disclosing to investors yeah. right now? This makes no sense. Yeah. Um, but it's really good in this instance because he will do a really good job of protecting you and making sure it's done the right way. So my first call is always to Nick, even though I've done so many funds now and we always use 506C now. Mm-hmm. We used to do 506B like way back in the day. And when you're first starting out, a lot of people will start with a 506B because the people most likely to write you a check when you're starting out is someone that knows you well enough to be in a 506B race. Yeah. When you have more reach like you do, usually a 506C starts making more sense. So I would really consider, and this is where a good attorney, like when you call Nick, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to ask you these questions. He'll be like, who do you want to raise from? What's their demographic? Are they accredited, not accredited? Where do you want to be able to talk about your deal? And then he's going to say, okay, based on your answers to these questions, you're going to use a 506B or you should use a 506C and then you'll talk through it. So that's the power of a really good securities attorney is, you don't have to tell them which exemption you're mm. going to use. They're going to tell you which exemption you should use. But, you know, for the uh, newer person. Yes. Or that, yeah, for a newer person that's posting social media. Yeah. You know, like, they hear this episode. Mm-hmm. Like, Man, I want to start a real estate fund. Yeah. What are the things you can't say mm-hmm. that will get you in trouble? Well, if you have a deal on the table, that is the biggest like barrier to posting for a 506B. Mm-hmm. So right now you don't have a deal. You don't have a fund yet. You're getting it set up. Right. So right now you can be talking about it. There's okay. no issue there because now you can be forming those relationships. Mm-hmm. And actually that's like one of my secret sauce tips is yeah. anybody who's trying to raise capital, raise capital before you have a deal, no matter what exemption you're using, mm-hmm. because this is a relationship business. People invest with people they know, like, and trust. Right. It's much easier when you're talking to somebody to get them excited about a deal and be like, I don't have anything to sell you right now. Like I have no opportunity to provide you with at this moment. But when I do, I'll let you know. Mm-hmm. It's much more powerful than being like, Steve, I have this deal and you're going to love it because then your immediate defense is up and you're going to be right. like, no, 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 no. Whereas if I'm like, oh, this is what we do and I'm so excited about it and this is why you should love it and this is our strategy and our track record and all the things, you're going to be excited about it and I'm gonna be like, you're going to be like, okay, great, sign me up. And I'm going to be like, oh, no. Nothing to sell you yet. Yeah, I don't have anything. I have nothing, no opportunities right. on the table at the moment. So it's always good to do this before you get a deal. So if you're posting on social media, you might be posting about what your company does. Mm-hmm. You might be posting about what you're trying to do or who you're looking to connect with or build relationships with. But you don't have a deal right now. So right. there's nothing to solicit anybody for. So the things I've seen, you know, like, so I guess what you're talking about is once I start pitching a deal, mm-hmm. this is where you can go in trouble with five or six yes. piece. So if I say, hey, I have a fund, mm-hmm. you're getting in trouble, potentially. But if I say I'm starting a fund, you can say almost whatever. Yeah, and depending on what kind of fund you're starting, it might be okay. Because if you're doing a 506C, then it's probably not an issue right. um, as long as you're taking the steps to properly verify your investors. So I know like one of the things that SEC hates is when you like guarantee returns. I never say the G word. That is the worst word you can, or the G word and the P word of promised. Yeah. Never, never, right. ever, ever. These are pro forma 
anticipated, mm-hmm. expected, mm-hmm. Uh, projected. All of those words are words we love. Right. Never say the word guarantee ever again because it's right. not a guarantee. <laughs> well, it's not. But, you know, just, you know, for anyone that's listening, like yes. those are just like guarantee and promise. Never. What Absolutely. do those words mean? We don't even have them in our dictionary. Got it. Got it. Um, and then, you know, this is not necessarily a fun deal, but like if you say, hey, um, I'm looking for some private lenders. I'm looking to pay 10% interest. Mm-hmm. It's not an investment in a property. Mm-hmm. It's just I need some private money lending. It's for a very specific property where there's a promissory note, deed of trust, and all these other things. And they're recorded on the And they're recorded. Okay. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. No, that is different because there's also like mortgage exemptions. Mm-hmm. So there, this is what the attorney will say. It depends, right? Because mm-hmm. it depends on a lot of factors. Sure. So it's likely not selling a security if it's done the correct way, which is why it's so important that you follow people that mm-hmm. know what they're doing, right? Because right. they'll make sure that the contracts and the structure of it is done correctly so you're not accidentally selling a security. And, you know, the SEC does not like, I didn't know. Like, that's not a good enough response for why you're not following. Yeah, it does not work. What is it? Ignorance from the law is not an excuse from the law or something. Yeah, ignorance ignorance is not an excuse. um, But it can still sometimes work its way through. But with SEC, no. No, no, no. (laughs) Just don't do it. And if you're unsure, it's totally worth it to pay for an attorney's hour of time to learn and understand what you're trying to do and what works or doesn't. Um, and there's something called a Howie test. I know you didn't ask me this, but I think it's important we talk yeah, about it. Okay. But so, before you go into that. Yeah. So, you know, you guys that are jumping in the middle of this, you know, uh, Vina is here. She's teaching me, right? I'm, I'm about to start a real estate fund. And who better to ask than someone that's done almost a billion dollars in multifamily. So thank you so much for coming in thank and sharing you. that with me. All right. So the Howie test. Yes, the Howie test. Okay. So the question is always, Am I selling a security or not, right? Mm -hmm. So there's four major parts to whether or not you're selling a security. So the first part is, is there an investment of capital, right? So you give me $100,000 to invest in my deals. Yes, we've met the first part of the Howey test, right? Is it in a common enterprise? So does that mean that if I ask five people for money, that's a common enterprise? Mm -hmm. So a common enterprise, that's the second piece of the Howey test. The third is, is there an expectation of profit? So are you just giving me the hundred grand and I'm giving you back the hundred grand or I'm just keeping the hundred? Do you expect to make a profit? Which obviously, yes, an investor does expect to make profit, right? And is it primarily based off of the work of somebody else? Mm -hmm. So if you and I are doing a deal together, let's say we're going to buy a house and we're going to renovate it and you know, I'm going to handle all of the administrative work and I'm going to put in my money. You're going to put in your money and you're going to take care of running renovations and I'm going to handle leasing and property management, and everything. Then you're not relying primarily on the work that I'm doing. You are putting in work too and we're making decisions together. So that doesn't meet the fourth test. Hmm. But if you're giving me the money and I'm going out and I'm investing and I'm making all the decisions and you're a passive investor, hmm then that does meet the Howey test. So when you meet all four of these rules, then you are selling a security and then you either need to register that security or you need to have an exemption you can rely on. So once you understand that fundamental, and I think that's where a lot of new investors mess up, is they go, oh, but so-and-so did it this way. There are a lot of people that do it wrong. Mm -hmm. That is not a good way to do it because the SEC won't like, oh, but someone else did it like this. Absolutely true. I mean, that's true with everything, right? Yes. Just because someone else did doesn't mean does not it mean the it's right. right. Way. Yeah, even really like big companies, well-known companies, don't always do things the right way, and so. And you might not know what kind of fund they have. You don't. Yeah, you don't always know what they're doing, how they're doing it, how they're structured. So just be wary of just 
copying it because someone else did it. But once you can answer like this how we test question, you then really know if you're selling a security. And a good securities attorney is going to tell you if you're not selling a security because yeah. they're not going to have any work to do on it. Um, so then another thing that seems to be trending mm -hmm. is this concept of a fund of funds. Yes. What is a fund of funds? So a fund of funds is, so let's say I have a parent fund that's like one, two, three Main Street apartments, right? I'm going to go buy it. It's going to be great. I need to raise $10 million for it. I'm making these numbers up, sure. obviously. Um, and then you come and you say, hey, Vina, I have a fund and I've raised $2 million from it. And I'm going to take your $2 million and I'm going to invest it in your $10 million fund. So now maybe you get a preferential position for your investors or maybe you get to negotiate a better payout for you, your fund. Mm -hmm. um, so essentially just think of it like kind of where it falls in the org chart, right? You have your parent fund and then you have all of the investors underneath it. And this is one investor underneath it. And it's usually an entity mm -hmm. and your entity, you know, the Steve Trang fund goes here and then sure. your investors will be underneath that. So it's just basically carving out a slice of a much larger deal. What's nice about it is you get access to deals that you might not have done otherwise. So if I'm buying a $100 million deal, you might not be able to go out and do that today, but you can take a piece of it by being a fund of funds mm -hmm. in that fund. So the fund of funds, who, which one's the fund of funds? Is it the, the guy on top? You. The, the guy, the, or the one that's smaller? Operator. The smaller one, yeah. So the fund is the main fund, mm -hmm. and then the fund of fund is the smaller fund that goes into the fund. Because right. it's... A, it's really like a fund in funds yeah. is probably the better way to describe it. Sure. Yeah, because I was kind of thinking um, my conceptual, because I haven't done a ton of research here, so yeah. again, thank you for coming on. Yeah. When I hear a fund of funds, it's like, okay, I have one fund, and within that fund, I got four or five different other funds that, like, this one can do the uh, semi-blind one, this one can do the truly blind, this one can do single asset. Oh, mm, no, you're conflating them now. Yeah. Okay, so you what you could do is, let's say you did your own fund, you could say, hey, this is a semi-blind fund, or maybe you have the assets identified, so maybe it's not blind, or maybe it is blind. That doesn't matter. But you could say, I'm raising $10 million, and I'm going to take $2 million and put it into Vina's deal number one. I'm going to put it in Susie Smith's deal number two. I'm going to put it in Pace Morby's deal number three, right? Mm -hmm. Like, So you can take your fund, and it can branch out and invest into multiple assets. Right. Which is more like you know how a re or a hedge fund is structured with multiple investments, mm -hmm. not one investment vehicle. Right. So it really depends on what your investor's tolerance is or appetite is, mm -hmm. and what your investment thesis is going into it. Yeah, so let's talk about the investment thesis because yep. something we haven't talked about is a PPM. Yep. So this is very important. Explain to me the investment thesis. Yes. Okay. So a PPM is a private placement memorandum, and what this is is it's a billion pages of legal jargon which will make you want to stick a rusty fork in your eye when you read it. But again, it protects you as the sponsor and it also protects your investors. And what the PPM is, is it's very clearly laid out and it talks about anything and everything an investor needs to know about a deal. Mm -hmm. It talks about their risks at, it just in general in real estate, in the market, on the assets specifically with you as a sponsor um, it talks about anything bad that could potentially happen. It says, you know, you're going to lose all your money. Your neighbor's going to lose their money. Their grandchildren are going to lose their money. Like, yeah. everybody's going to lose everything. Here are, all, here are all the different worst-case scenarios. Exactly. And it is a very scary document. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember when I first started, I went back to Nick, and I was like, Nick, what are you doing? If I give this to my investors, they're going to run away. He's like, good. 
this is where you want them to be scared. And then if they still invest because they believe in the deal, great. But he's like, you don't want someone that's scared investing into the deal. Those are not your investors. And I was like, oh, I hate you, but fine. That makes yeah. sense, right? Well, especially like you're talking about someone that wants to invest, right? An accredited investor. Maybe the first time they see it, they'll be scared. Yeah. After they see it, they already – and I'll tell you the secret of how I handle it in just one minute. So, okay, you have your, like, risk factors, right? Then you also have how the funds are going to move. Like, what's the money being used for? What fees are you as a sponsor taking? You disclose all your fees, your compensation, conflicts of interest, right? Like, in our funds, I have to disclose that I am not exclusive to this fund because I have so many deals, right? So I'm going to be working on all of those. Of course, we have, like, teams that work on everything, mm -hmm. but – I have to disclose that to investors. Otherwise, you come to me and be like, Vina, why are you working on this other investment yeah. that I'm not invested in and not focusing your time here? And I'm, I'm going to point you to the PPM and say, well, I told you I have other investments that I'm handling, but I'm giving this equal time as well. Um, it's going to talk about how the funds flow. The, it's going to have the operating agreement in there that you're joining the entity that I have this operating agreement mm -hmm. for. Um, it's going to tell you what happens from a tax perspective, what happens in the case of a loss? Like all of these things are going to be disclosed. Like I said, it's going to be like a hundred million pages long. It's going to be so long, so boring, but it protects both of you guys. And this is like the official document. So no matter what you've said, this document is the ruling or governing document. Yeah. Now here's the way to talk about the PPM to investors that I've learned after like a decade. Um, when you're going out to investors, and you're talking to them and you're they're, you know, excited about the deal, you're pitching them the deal, they're excited, they want in, they're ready to move forward. I actually address the PPM out of the gate. So I kind of take out the like punch that you get when you receive it, right? I go, by the way, you are going to receive a document from me. It's called a PPM. Super long, super boring, super scary. It's gonna, you know, it's gonna be the normal standard disclosures, industry standard. It's going to tell you you're going to lose all your money. Your neighbors are going to lose their money. Their dog's going to lose their money. Like everybody's losing their money. The sky is going to fall down. This is something our attorneys require us to do. The SEC requires us to do this. Mm -hmm. And we're SEC compliant and we're SEC compliant in every way. So I just want you to know that it's going to come out. Feel free to have your attorney review it. Do not pay them to redline it. We cannot redline the document for you. Everybody signs the same document. You're going to sign the document. I'm going to sign it. My neighbor, my sister, everybody invested signs this exact same document. What it does is it lowers the, the negativity that a lot of investors will get yeah. from the PPM. You put all the negativity on the table. Yep. You, you just like remove all of those as potential surprises or issues. Right. And you say, do you have any questions? Once you read it, let me know if you have any questions. Now, I think every investor should read it so that they know what they're getting into. Mm -hmm. Most do not read it. But what happens is um, when a deal is progressing, like maybe you have something that's slightly different or you're going to exit earlier or you're going to exit later or whatever, there's always going to be that one investor that's like, but you didn't tell us that. And we're like, but we did. Here's your PPM, yeah. right? And you want to have that to refer back to so that they can't ever say you didn't tell them something. You have to protect yourself. Exactly. Um, so one thing we haven't talked about was who can actually start a fund? Theoretically, anybody can start a fund. But just because you can, it doesn't mean you should. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the biggest thing when you're doing a fund is you're taking in investor dollars. Every single thing we do at our company, the first and last question we always ask is, how does this affect our investors? 
Is it going to positively affect them? Is it going to have a positive impact on their returns? If it's not, we don't do it. Um, And so I think that that's the first thing. If you do not feel that level or that sense of responsibility, this is not for you. You will never sleep the same again once you take in an investor dollar because the responsibility is so great. And that's how it should be. Yeah. Now, with that, if you are not somebody who is going to be meticulous in your accounting, your documentation, following these rules and guidelines, it's probably not a good fit for you uh, because you do need to keep very solid records. For example, we never commingle funds. There is not one dollar that crosses from one project to another ever. Um, and we, you know, we keep very meticulous records of every investor. We keep all documentation, paperwork, everything gets filed and stored appropriately. Um, and that is in and of itself, these funds are a big administrative hurdle. And if you don't have the time or resources to invest in building that infrastructure, it's probably going to be a pretty bad fit. Yeah. Um, but we could use the capital that we raise. Mm -hmm to be applied towards the administrative stuff. So Yes. Right. Yeah, and and you know that's a disclosure in the PPM is what you your kind of planned expenses are going to be. That we disclose yeah. that. But right. yes, so, you can. So, to operate the fund to pay for the attorney. Yep. For all the right paperwork. Your tax people, yep, everybody. Everything's disclosed mm-hmm. within that. Yes. Um and I, I'm glad you brought up the point about, you know, the responsibility operating in a way like a fiduciary to protect your investors. Mm-hmm. I actually had a conversation with someone yesterday, and he was like, it's really weird, Steve, that you really dislike this one person. Like, you don't ever blast anybody. Yeah. Like, why do you feel so strongly about this yeah. one individual? Yeah. And I said, well, because he has a track record of borrowing money from people, not the banks. I don't mm-hmm. care if you default on the banks. Right. Just that's different. Yeah. yeah. They know better than anybody else the yeah. value of the risk. But if I borrow money, right, from Vina for a property – and it doesn't work out, I'm going to make Vina whole. It might not be today. It might not be this year. Mm-hmm. It might make 20 years. I don't know. Yeah. But 100% you're going to be made whole, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm glad that you talk, you talk about this, this idea of uh, this responsibility because I think it should absolutely be taken with maximum um, uh, seriousness is not a right word I'm looking for. but um, No, I know what you're saying. It, it, it's a responsibility. Yeah. That's not really what it is. Lightly. It is not. And you should, if you're going to take it lightly, just don't do it. Yeah. Just don't do it. What questions have I not asked you about starting a fund that I should? Oh my ask? gosh. You've asked me some really good questions so far. And I feel like you're like ready to go out tomorrow and start this fund. Well, I mean, I've already started the wheels on this, right? But, so like I already have like the best realtor in town that already buys properties mm-hmm. for hedge funds. I already know the guy that was heavily involved with Blackstone when they were buying all these properties. So this is like the best analyst. Amazing. I already have the underwriter who is able is who's who's capable of underwriting a hundred deals a day, right? So I already have all the the team. I already have the team, and I already have the other guy who's got access. He's uh, I think he says like three hundred million dollars. Love it. You got all the pieces. I have all the pieces in place. I just need to make sure I don't. Screw it up. I mean, <laughs> that's true in general. So good job on that. Yeah. But no, having the team in place is actually a really great first step. Have you done like a business plan yet? Have you kind of sketched out what this would look like? I have not gone that far. Okay. So this is really, I want to say what the, the, the impetus for all this mm-hmm. was watching uh, 
Silicon Valley Bank. Ah, uh, yes. I was like, yes. hey, this feels like Lehman Brothers. It kind of does. Except, you know what? I thought it was going to have a bigger impact than it ultimately ended up having. Right. But then we did have Signature Bank, yep. Credit Suisse. Yep. And I think... There was one more. Yeah. There was a fourth one. Who was one. it? Uh, I, don't, I don't remember, but there was a fourth an bank. Right? Yeah. And, you know, it was actually really cool. Yesterday, I was at a wedding, and I was talking to one of the other guys. I was like, hey, how are you doing? You know, how's yeah, life? Yeah. Whatever. Small talk. Yeah. He's like, it's interesting. He's like, oh, what is interesting? He's like, well, Silicon Valley Bank is one of our biggest clients. I was like, oh, <laughs> tell me more about is that, that. Interesting? Is that the word? Interesting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's talking about how their businesses slow down drastically yeah. because they're, they're the clients are Bank of America, JP Morgan Chase. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, yeah, all these major banks, Wells Fargo is like, all these major banks are like, pause everything. Yeah. Right. But then he's like, Visa and American Express, which are also his clients, are like spending money like it's going out of Go style. Forward. Yeah, right? no, it makes sense. And he's like, and our other clients, FDIC, is like, holy cow, like you have all the people, an amazing client yeah. list. Right. But he's talking about like, he's get to see it firsthand how all the executives are behaving in this. What are they shift. doing? Um, I bet you I know. Uh, it seems like they're, by, they're, they're, they're not as freaked out as they were. Yeah. A couple of weeks I ago. I agree with this. Yeah. Which is your point, right? Like, mm-hmm. hey, like it doesn't seem to have the same impact. But everything was just fine before. Until and it wasn't. It's, it's yeah. Just, it's just a bank failure. Oh, and then like we had like Lehman Brothers, Wamu. And then, everything. And it was just like this just, domino. It was like a spiral kind yeah. of. But here's the thing. This is the best time to be getting into this space. Yeah. Because. Okay, we all made a lot of money in the last 10 years in real estate. Right. We've been in like one of the best markets we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Every day was a party. Right, exactly. But it's not the bull run where people make like ungodly amounts of money. It's actually the bear run yeah. because this is where the opportunity comes. Mm-hmm. And so all the people that have been on the sideline until now and are just like learning about this and like finding you and finding your education – this is the best time. Yeah. Like we have a very short window of opportunity in front of us. There are so many, especially in the multifamily world, mm-hmm. but I'm sure the single family world is going to feel some of these effects, but there are so many assets that have debt in place yeah. and no cap on the insurance. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, on the interest when I was talking to Pace about this. He's like, he's so excited. Yes. There's opportunity in the next six to yes. 24 months. Yes. And uh, yeah, going back to like the one I'm looking at, it's like, the phone call I made, right? Cause it's like, it's like, everyone's like a sleeper cell. Like they're just kind of doing yep. their own thing. Yep. And the phone calls like, Hey, I'm thinking about getting the back, the band back together. Well, that's how, what all of us are doing. Like right now we're in expansion mode because mm-hmm. I'm getting ready to buy everything. Yeah. I want to buy everything. Cause the thing about real estate that we know is it always goes up over it's time. It's cyclical and it'll always go up over time. So if you can weather a storm for a short period of time, this is what smart money is doing right now. Sophisticated money, smart money, family offices, they are moving hardcore into real estate assets and especially in the multifamily sector because it's such a stabilized asset class out of all the different asset classes that you can be invested into. Cool. I'm trying to see here. I don't see any questions here. Maybe we got a little bit too complicated. Too complicated? Yeah. But, I mean, again, like I said, I'm totally selfish here, right? I was like, hey, I want to learn as much as possible to make sure I'm not doing anything stupid along the way. I, well, I, and I think that's very smart, and I think that's really the first step. I What I would say is, especially because you have a lot of wholesalers that follow you, mm-hmm. what's important for them to understand about this is even if they're not going to go out and start their own fund, you can wholesale two funds. And if you can speak that language, you're going to have a very different conversation with me than if you're like, 
oh yeah, you know, I wholesale deals here and there. Yeah. If you want to wholesale like the really big deals and like the multifamily deals, no one understand how to speak multifamily language, right? Like mm. language of multifamily. It's different than single family. Um, I, and I didn't make it up, but it's like all very sophisticated, savvy investors. Mm. And if you can speak to that now as a multifamily buyer, when I have a wholesaler who approaches me 99% of the time, they're like, oh, I have this deal and it's $1.2 billion plus 3%. And I'm like, okay, you obviously have no idea what you're doing and you're emailing me from a Gmail account. Probably you don't have this deal. Okay, and so, so I'm going to ignore don't it. send from Gmail. Do not send from Gmail, please. It's like $6 a month to get a professional email address. Go do that. It's yeah. worth it. Because yeah. um, if someone sends me something from Gmail, I immediately, I don't even care how good the deal is. I don't care if they're going to give it to me for free. I don't even respond to it and we yeah. blacklist them. Yeah. Um, so that's first. Second is if you come to me and you say plus a 3% buyer's fee, it automatically tells me you're a single family wholesaler, not a multifamily wholesaler. Yeah. Because in the multifamily world, we don't even pay brokers 3% on the vast majority of large deals. Right. Because the numbers don't work when you do that. Mm -hmm. It's like we sold a deal last year for over nine figures. It was over $100 million on the exit. And our broker fee from one of the top brokerages in the world was under 1%. Right. So, but it's a $100 million plus deal. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, that's like the second thing I would say, but I would say if you can speak like in fund language and you can say, Hey, this is a great fit for anyone who's running a reg D 506 B or 506 C or just a reg D raise sponsors that can actually close on the deal are going to be like, but you don't, that's not what a wholesaler says. How do you know about this? Mm -hmm. Right. And then it gives you instant credibility with the buyers that can close. So maybe one thing they can do is to reach out or not reach out. They can follow you. Yeah, totally. Follow you on social media yep. and they can see what it sounds like. Absolutely. And it's easy to learn. Yeah. I mean, if you can learn how to speak wholesale talk, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's a different language. If you yeah. can learn how to speak wholesale, you can learn how to speak multifamily. Sure. It just takes time. How would someone uh, uh, follow you? Uh, they can find me on all social media, Vina Jetty, V-E-E-N-A-J-E-T-T-I. Or I have a Facebook community. It's a free community where we talk about all things funds, multifamily mm -hmm. called Mastering Multifamily with Vina Jetty. Perfect. And so we do have one question before we wrap up here. Yeah. Claudio, uh, Vina, there are a lot of moving parts multifamily to underwrite the financials and mm -hmm. lots of competition for those assets. How do you quickly sift through the best opportunities? Oh, I love that. Okay, so first and foremost, I have a very clear buy box. So if it does not meet this list of criteria, which is like Class B, value add, 1985 or newer, 200 plus units, 75 million or more. I don't even look at it. I don't even underwrite it. I just say no. Mm -hmm. Because it's a quick no is better than a slow yes, right? Right. And so I immediately don't underwrite those deals. If it meets all of those criteria, then we do what we call like a back of the envelope, back of the napkin calculation where we look and say like, okay, roughly it's meeting these metrics. If it green lights there, then we do another level of underwriting. Yeah. Um, but like 99% of the deals you get are going to be knocked out in those first two rounds. Right. Uh, we look at probably about in today's market, maybe six to 800 deals before we see one. That's how many we have to look at. Wow. Yeah. It's That's a lot. Incredible. There was a time where it was like one to 200. Mm -hmm. And I actually think we're getting back there, especially as the economy shifts and we're at a different point in the market cycle. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So we got to wrap up here. Um, yes. Guys, I see like this massive opportunity that's coming up. Obviously, I mean, you can see not only do I see this opportunity, like I'm, I'm taking <laughs> you're action. taking the opportunity. Yeah, we're taking action with this. So, you know, if you guys want to just stay in the loop, see what we're doing, right? Get updates. Go to teamwithsteve.com. From there, you can kind of find out exactly what we're doing there. 
Uh, and again, for everyone that's uh, watching, how can they get a hold of you? You can find me on all social media, Vina Jetty, or in my Facebook community, Mastering Multifamily with Vina Jetty. Thank you so much for answering all my yes. questions, being extremely patient with me. And thank you, everyone that's watching today's very special episode yeah. where it was really completely selfish. And I just got to ask <laughs> as many questions as I could. I love it. About starting a real estate fund. Well, if you have more questions, I'm here even after the show. All right, cool. Thank but you thank so you. much. Thank you. Appreciate, Appreciate you. It. Shout out to Steve Train. Jump on the Steve Train. We real estate disruptors.